morning, everybody. I'm Margie, and the um, reading this morning is from the Old Testament, from Genesis chapter 15. On, uh, that's on page 15 <laughs> in the Bible. Genesis 15, beginning to read at verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gergeshites, and Jebusites.
Thank you for reading, Margie. Good morning, everybody. It's really good to be uh, back with you at uh, City on a Sunday morning. Uh, I feel a bit like a guest preacher now, uh, having been away for a few weeks in the east. Uh, east of Southampton, that is, not, not Far East or anything, if you, those of you don't know where I'm based. Uh, well, Ruth has already uh, prayed for us, so we're, we're going to uh, get straight into looking at uh, Genesis 15 uh, together. And I want to start with a question. How do you feel about the future? Uh, research group Britain Thinks poses this question in its annual Mood of the Nation survey. Here are some responses from last December's report. Apprehensive, worried, fed up, rising costs are a concern. You're not kidding. And this was before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, skyrocketing energy costs, the death of the Queen, inflation soaring and mortgage rates rising. Imagine how gloomy this year's report will be. But what if we were to do a mood of the congregation survey? How do you feel about the future? Your future at work, future studies, future retirement, future finances, future health. Well, the most important question of all, how do you feel about your eternal future? Well, for anyone feeling anxious or uncertain about any aspect of the future, personal, global, personal, eternal, you'll, you'll feel right at home here in Genesis 15. And you'll find Abraham to be your friend and ally. Uh, over in the New Testament, he's called the father of all who believe. And yet here is this man of faith, clearly fearful and uncertain. And we know that because of what God says in the opening verse. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now, whenever you read in the Bible, do not be afraid or don't be anxious, remember God only says such things because he knows that's how we do feel at times, fearful, worried. Abraham's state of mind is also clear, I think, from his two questions to God. So in verse 2, to the one who's just promised to be his very great reward, Abraham asks, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And then in response to God's reply, he asks, verse 8, Sovereign Lord, how can I know? You see, Abraham, the man of faith, asks questions of God. He's seeking reassurance. And I hope you know this morning that to be a person of faith does not mean you must never have doubts or should never seek reassurance from God or can't ask questions of him. The Psalms are full of questions to God. Take Psalm 13. It opens with a whole string of questions. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? Well, in the very limited time we have this morning, I want us to zoom in on what Abraham teaches us about saving faith, under this heading, believing in the God of unchangeable promises. And to get to the heart of Genesis 15, we're going to view it through the lens of Abraham's two questions. What can you give me, and how can I know? First then, in verses 1 to 7, what can you give me? Uh, the events described here happen, verse 1, after this, or after these things. But after what things? Well, the events of the previous chapter. Uh, in summary, Abraham went to war against a coalition of four kings, the superpower leaders of his day, and he carried out what Chris called last time a dazzling rescue of his nephew Lot, who had been taken hostage. But even though Abraham defeated the kings, we can understand that he may now be feeling vulnerable after this great victory. It's often the way, isn't it? Those of you into football will know this. When is your team most vulnerable? In those moments straight after scoring, when there's that feeling of elation. When are we most vulnerable as believers? 
after some kind of victory, victory over a particular temptation perhaps, or after God's used us to do some great work on his behalf. Sometimes after baptism, we can be vulnerable. But also in chapter 14, after that victory, Abraham refused an offer to keep the spoils of war for himself. So it's with these things in mind, the feeling of vulnerability that another attack may be imminent, and having just rejected the riches of this world in favor of a heavenly blessing. After this first one, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. God is restating in summary form promises that he made right back in Genesis chapter 12. But interestingly, you notice this is what now gives rise to Abraham's questions and need for reassurance. And so don't be surprised if sometimes you're reading the Bible and and you come across a passage or a verse, you think, "Yeah, yeah, but that just doesn't fit with my current experience. Whenever that happens, follow Abraham's example. Turn it into prayer. Lord, you promised this in your word and I'm trying to believe it, but it's just not the reality right now in my life or in this situation. Help me overcome my unbelief. Now, what's concerning Abraham is that he is still childless. Verse 3, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Uh, In the ancient world, a wealthy person without children might name a servant as the sole beneficiary in their will. So in effect, he's saying, Lord, what's the point in making me rich? When I die, it's all going to the butler anyway. Words to that effect. Back in chapter 12, God said that his promised blessings would come through Abraham's offspring. But he's now somewhere between 75 and 85 years old. His wife is only 10 years younger and still no children. Humanly speaking, no prospect of children. Bear in mind the name Abraham means exalted father. And well, we can kind of imagine his embarrassment, can't we? As he's out at the market or he's out for a walk in the desert, he gets chatting to someone, oh, your name's Abraham, exalted father. So how many kids have you got then? Hmm, none. Well, notice how God responds to Abraham's question. What can you give me? Verse 4, this man, Eliezer, his servant, will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He simply restates the promise. And he now gives him the second of three visual aids to reinforce the promise. Back in Genesis 13, God promised him as many children as the dust of the earth. In chapter 22, it will be more children than sand on the seashore. And here, verse 5, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, this wouldn't work in Southampton. I live in the city on the 12th floor, apparently nearer to the stars. Can I see a single star at night? Not usually. But you know, we're only just over an hour's drive from the South Downs National Park, which is officially a dark sky reserve. I thought about going for research purposes, but wasn't sure the church would cover my expenses. But if you're a visual learner, maybe it is worth spending a clear night on the South Downs to grasp the enormity of God's promise here. According to the European Space Agency website, in our galaxy alone, astronomers estimate there are around 100,000 million stars. And you know, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, as Will is, you are partial fulfillment of this awesome promise to Abraham. He's the father of all who believe. I can't help wondering if Jewish Paul had Genesis 15 in mind when he wrote that the Philippian Christians will shine like stars in the sky. And if you're not yet one who believes, 
Maybe you've come to see Will being baptized this morning and you're wondering why on earth would an obviously sane, intelligent young man want to be plunged underwater in public? Or maybe you're already interested in the Christian faith, but you're wondering, why do I need or why would I want to be a Christian? God, what can you give me? Well, how about perfect righteousness and eternal security? Look with me, please, at verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, there are many contenders for most important verse in the Bible, but I think Genesis 15, verse 6 is right up there. And for anyone who is here this morning uncertain about their eternal future, you do not want to miss this because this verse teaches you how to get right with God in this life, even this morning and get a 100% cast iron guarantee concerning your eternal future. The word righteousness means conformity to a certain set of standards or expectations. In this case, the expectations of God, the perfect creator and sustainer of everything. There is no greater set of expectations to conform to. We're talking perfect love for God, perfect love for others, a perfect thought life, perfect speech, perfect attitudes, perfect behavior, perfect in every imaginable aspect of life, all of the time, without exception. So don't think driving test standard, where even with 15 minor faults, you can still get a pass. No, think absolute perfection. That is biblical righteousness. So if on that basis I were now to say, I am righteous... Well, that would surely be the height of arrogance, wouldn't it? The man's completely deluded. Send him back to the east, you might think. But those in the, more, in the know this morning would say to themselves quietly, yes, I am righteous too. Because as with Abraham, God has credited his perfect righteousness to us. None of us has lived a life of absolute perfection, very far from it. But like Abraham, we've believed the Lord, put our faith in him and his promises, and God has generously credited righteousness to us as a gift. Now let me say, this is very hard to grasp because it goes against what we learn from early childhood. That good behavior earns rewards and bad behavior leads to punishment. So I remember at primary school uh, getting the occasional star or sticker for helping clear up or being kind. I'm told today there are rewards for eating all your packed lunch. That wasn't a thing in my day. It's a shame I would have, I'm sure, excelled at that one. <laughs> now I'm not saying, of course, that it's wrong to reward good behavior. But when it comes to what makes somebody a Christian, we need to unlearn that deeply ingrained principle that good behavior earns rewards. Because it is not by trying to be good that a person becomes a Christian. And let me say this is not easy to unlearn because that message will be reinforced often over the next 70 days as right across the UK, parents will be trying to coerce their kids into good behavior by saying what? Father Christmas only leaves presents for well-behaved children. And so to help us unlearn this principle, I want us to turn to a passage in the New Testament. Uh, it's Romans chapter 4. If you've got a church Bible in front of you, it would be really helpful to look this up. It's on page 1131 in the church Bibles. Page 1131. Because here in Romans 4, Paul, a Jewish man who trusted in Jesus... 
he helpfully explains what Genesis 15 means for us today. So Romans 4 verse 3. What does scripture say? Abraham, as he became known, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. There's Genesis 15 verse 6. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. That makes sense to us, I'm sure, doesn't it? So last month, my bank account was credited with a sum of money from Above Bar Church, following my recent appointment to the staff team. But I haven't written a thank you letter to the leaders and church members. Some of you may say later, Jonathan, you really ought to. Everybody's waiting for it. And it's not that I'm not grateful for the payment, I really am, but to the person who says, look, where's our thank you letter? Well, I would say, hold on, my wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. An obligation under the contract both I and the church treasurer signed. I work, hopefully hard, the church pays me. And in the same way, I assume that none of you who are employees write weekly or monthly thank you letters to your employers. Unless perhaps you've got your eyes set on becoming employee of the month or something, uh, which clearly I don't. <laughs> now do you see Paul's point? Becoming a Christian, he's saying, is nothing like signing a contract of employment with God. So that I work hard, do lots of good things, try to be righteous, give money to the church and to charity, serve on a committee or two. And because I've worked hard and really tried my best, well, God is obliged to accept me as a Christian and to pay me by welcoming me into heaven when I die. That would be an employer-employee type relationship, wouldn't it? I work, God pays. But no. You see, God wants an entirely different kind of relationship with us. A relationship built on his love, generosity, his undeserved kindness. One that begins when I simply believe him and his promises. So look at verse 5 in Romans 4. Verse 5, however, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. That verb justifies is another way of saying make someone righteous. When God justifies the ungodly, and by nature that's all of us here, because not one of us has lived that 100% perfect life. When God justifies the ungodly, he brings us into a right relationship with him. All his work, not ours. And then look down with me to verse 23. The words it was credited to him were not written for him, Abraham alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. If you want it in a nutshell, the only way to become a Christian is by trusting in Jesus. He lived a perfectly righteous life but was brutally put to death on a cross to take God's punishment for my and your lack of righteousness. He was then raised to life to make me right with God. And if you believe that, God will credit the perfect righteousness of Jesus to your account as an undeserved, unearned, unmerited gift. Instantly, like a faster payment. Banks say they take two hours, but they're always there instantly if you check. I'm sure we've all done that. We've had that fun, haven't we? Looking between accounts, we see it move instantly. So with the righteousness of Jesus, instantly credited to your account. 
if you put your trust in him. Now back in Genesis chapter 15, you'll notice that along with the promise of countless descendants, God also promises Abraham in verse 7 a physical land to possess. A land that will later be described as flowing with milk and honey, meaning a place of rich and abundant blessing. Today, in our increasingly insecure and uncertain world, Christians are not promised a physical land in this world. No, we look forward to a place of eternal security and abundant blessing, to what another New Testament writer calls a better country, a heavenly one. And you know, there really is no other way to enjoy eternal security and blessing because only the perfectly righteous can enter into the indescribable joy and blessings of eternal life. And the only way to be made perfectly righteous is not by religion, not by trying hard to be the best version of yourself, not by trying to pull your socks up, but rather by humbly receiving righteousness from God as a gift. Uh, Earlier in Romans, Paul puts it like this, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. All who believe. doesn't matter how unrighteous you may have been so far in this life. It's available to all who believe. And that's why I and many others here this morning can say confidently, I am righteous. Definitely not because we're good people or better than anybody else, but because we're believing people, trusting in God and in his promises. Well, Abraham now has another question for God. So secondly, and very briefly, how can I know? Verse 8, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? Now remember, Abraham believes God. We've just been told that. But he still wants reassurance. And it's not an unreasonable question, is it? God has promised him a land currently occupied by other nations, all the ites in the final two verses. So, Lord, how can I know I'll possess it? And it's not unreasonable for you to ask this morning, how can I know that I will gain possession of this better country Christians look forward to, a heavenly one? Is it possible to be 100% sure that when I die... I'll be welcomed into God's kingdom and enjoy all the blessings of eternal life and not because of my own goodness but because of God's generosity and because of Jesus. How can I know that I shall gain possession of it? Answer, because of God's promise guaranteed with blood. Now if anyone was thinking uh, baptism is a bit strange, this ceremony in the second half of uh, Genesis 15 will seem off the scale bizarre. God says to Abraham, verse 9, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. Well, what on earth is going on here, and how can this possibly relate to us today? Well, in simple terms, in the ancient Near East, this was how international treaties were agreed, or covenants as they were known, especially between a powerful king and somebody less powerful. Today, fortunately, we usually make documents legal by getting them signed, don't we, in the presence of witnesses. But in Abraham's day, it was different. Terms were laid out, including promises and sanctions for failing to keep the promises, and they clinched the deal by what was known as cutting the covenant. Because animals were cut in two, and both parties would then walk through between the pieces, showed their commitment to the agreement, including the sanctions if they failed to keep the promises, And they were saying, in effect, 
If I fail to keep to my end of the deal, may I be like these animals, cut in two. That's a bit like people might say today, I I swear on my life. Except in those days, you really were putting your life on the line. But did you notice that here in Genesis 15, this is not quite how things work out. Because after cutting all these animals in two, verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then look what happens in verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Just appeared, miraculously. Here is a mysterious appearance of God in flaming light, the God of the unchangeable and unshakable promises. And God is walking through the pieces on his own, unilaterally. He's taking on himself the sanctions for breaking the covenant, carrying all the burden on his own shoulders. How can you know, Abraham, that you will gain what I promise? Well, may the curse of the covenant fall on me if I fail to deliver on my promise. May I be cut in two. May the Almighty die. Verse 18, on that day the Lord made, the Hebrew word is literally cut, the Lord cut a covenant with Abraham. Now you may say, well, that's an impossible sanction. How can God die? And yet many years later, that is exactly what happened. Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, took on himself the curse The law requires for your and my lack of perfect righteousness. He bore it all on his own shoulders. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. The Son of God is walking through alone to death. And as he hangs on the cross, the gospel writers tell us that, as in Genesis 15, a thick and terrible darkness comes over the whole land. And God did die. But Jesus was blameless, perfectly righteous, He'd done nothing worthy of death. And so on the third day, God the Father raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So if I trust in Jesus, how can I know that I've received his perfect righteousness? How can I know my eternal future is absolutely secure? Well, because Jesus, the Son of God, has made a promise and he has guaranteed it with his own blood. Whoever hears my word, he says, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Present tense, it starts now. And will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life.